Welcome to the Literate Caveman. Hello, and thank you for listening to my podcast. The purpose of this podcast is mostly to review books and literature with an emphasis on mindset. Occasionally, I may do an episode that is a compilation of related subjects. Most of the books I will review will be older, less-known books that I feel offer wisdom and value to the reader. I do have a couple of books in mind that are recently published, but the bulk of this podcast will be older material. In general, these podcasts will be longer form talks of my YouTube and Rumble videos. Now, to introduce myself for those who don't know, my name is Chad Blake, and I am the Literate Caveman. The name is a kind of joke. It relates to an old nickname I have, and just my temperament in general. I am more often compared to either a caveman, a viking, or a lumberjack than anything else. But anyone who knows me knows that I really enjoy literature and reading in general. I have worked as a bodyguard, a self-defense instructor. The bulk of my career has been as a strength and conditioning coach. I'm also an author, and very recently, I guess I decided my resume was not long enough, I have started working as a voiceover artist. I have started this podcast because over the years, several people have asked me to compile a list of recommended reading. Several years ago, I managed a website for a small gym that had a fair amount of traffic. I have always been interested in mindset, and I feel very strongly that we ignore the lessons of the past at our peril. During that time, I wrote a number of articles referencing historical events and literature, and I received a few emails from readers sharing with me that those articles encouraged them to discover literature for themselves and foster their broader understanding of the human condition. I've often thought about that and considered compiling a list of recommended reading, and at this time, this is the result. As I go, I intend to organize a list of good books on my website, theliteratecaveman.com. Today, we are going to introduce The Four Loves by one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. As a reader, I am drawn to Lewis because, in the first place, I find him to be quite logical. He establishes good, solid logic chains. Now, if you don't know what a logic chain is, I'll give just a simple example. If you want to use the alphabet as it would explain to explain the concept, if D is true, it must be preceded by C, which must be preceded by B, which depends on A. That is probably not the best example of a logic chain, but it should get the idea across. Things exist in a logical order, and they're dependent on each other. The second reason I really like C.S. Lewis is because as a Christian, I find I like his tone and his outlook. Uh, I do not always agree with him, but I find him more relatable than a lot of modern Christian authors. That's just, that's just me and my personality. And the third thing is, I find that C.S. Lewis is very precise about his use of language, and I appreciate this. I'm pretty sure I developed an interest in the precise use of language from reading Lewis. Some reactions that I get to C.S. Lewis when I talk about him, when I introduce him to people, obviously not him, but when I introduce his literature to people, it's not unusual for me to bring him up in conversation. And when I do, the reactions I get are pretty consistent. That is one of the reasons why I'm starting this series with one of his lesser known books. So the first thing that happens is people either have not read Lewis or they do not realize that they have read Lewis. This is often the case with people who have either read the Narnia series, or more likely just The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, or people that have had them read to them when they were, when they were young. The second thing that happens is uh, when I tell people that I like C.S. Lewis, they always, a lot of people will go like, oh, you need to read Chesterton or some other author, which is fine. Um, actually, I need to read Chesterton. I haven't gotten around to it, but I have that happen a lot. I haven't really had a lot of conversations with people 
that have read anything of his other than my next point is if they have read anything of C.S. Lewis, it's usually either The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Narnia series, Mere Christianity, which is a good book, or The Screwtape Letters, which is also a great book. And actually, Mere Christianity is a really good book to start with, with C.S. Lewis, because it's one that he wrote for a really broad audience, and I think it's a little easier to understand. And it also is a good introduction to the way that he thought and the way he introduced logic chains. If you, if you start with that, I think it's it makes reading some of his other books a lot easier. But the thing is, he had a vast body of work. He wrote over 30 books, and three of those were published after, his, after he passed away. There's a, an awful lot to learn from the guy, much more than what you get from Mere Christianity and the Screwtape Letters. Uh, and if you've never read the Narnia series, I don't care how old you are. Um, I've, I read them as, as an adult. They're, they're really good stories. They're worth reading. Now, some challenges with understanding, Lewis, that I feel like I need to address. One thing is, depending on the book you're reading, the intended audience. Now, what I mean by that is, going back to mere Christianity, that was based off of radio broadcasts that he did in London for the population during World War II. So he did that for a broader audience than like a college class. But when he wrote the book, he actually took his, they took the notes, the transcription from the broadcast, and he's reworked them. So when you read the book, it's actually a book that he wrote, he, he worked on it. It wasn't, it's not strictly from, from the broadcast that they did. I think it's a little bit easier, but a lot of the books that have been published by him are actually transcribed from lectures that he gave at college when he was a professor. And that, I think, makes them very difficult for people like me to understand because I did not take his college classes. So he's, he's often speaking to an audience that's familiar with his subject, and that's much different than writing a book for a broad audience. The other thing about that is um, I, I don't think that he considered that, let's see, I think he passed away in 1965, 60 years after his death, this guy in America is sitting here talking about him. I don't think that he foresaw anything like that happening. So my opinion is he wrote his books for a pretty narrow audience and they've far exceeded this the scope of what he had, just what he saw as possible. I read when I was preparing this that the Chronicles of Narnia have sold over 100 million copies worldwide. That is insane. That's an immense amount of books. So, and I'm, I'm sure he just didn't think about that. So between his intended audience, which is often he was giving lectures at universities and they were familiar with the, sub, with the subject matter, the next thing that can make him difficult to understand is, and I, I feel this kind of goes back to my first point, my first and second point is he sometimes in his books, I think because sometimes it's because of his intended audience, and sometimes it's because again there's there the books were transcribed from lectures that he gave and he was speaking to an audience that was familiar with his subject. He will often mention other authors to support what he's talking about, but he's assuming that you know that you're familiar with the author he's speaking of, and so he'll just give their last name. Most of the time, he doesn't reference the book he's talking about. He'll just mention the author, and he'll mention something about what they said. And if you're not familiar with that author, that can make it, I, I think, just harder to, harder to follow him because you, it's, it's difficult to know what he's arguing about when you don't know who he's arguing against. And I'm not criticizing him. I just think that's kind of a detail from, again, what I said, like his intentions behind a lot of the things that he published. The last thing that can make C.S. Lewis challenging 
is his language can be a little bit difficult. He's a very intelligent man. He was a very verbose man. He also lived in a very different time than we did. Language has changed quite a bit. The way people communicate has changed quite a bit. So I think if you're going to read one of his books, which you should, but if you do, keeping a dictionary handy is advised. You'll get more out of it if you just pause to look some words up. So even preparing this talk, and I've read this book before, I really like Merriam-Webster. It's a good resource. It's easy to use. They have a great search function. It'll give you the definition. It gives you pronunciations of words. There's other details too if you want them. But if you just if you find something you don't know what it means, there's going to be an example here coming up. Uh, it's a good resource. Getting into the Four Loves. So this book was published in 1960. That was three years before C.S. Lewis died at the age of 65. This book examines the idea that both in British English and American English, so just you know English in general. The word love often gets misused and is interchangeable with like, which has its own specific and different meaning. Now, C.S. Lewis puts across the idea that in Greek, there are four different words for love, and they each mean something different. So the English versions of those are affection, friendship, eros, and charity. Four distinct, different types of love. Sometimes they overlap, sometimes they don't. So we're going to discuss each form of love in different episodes of this podcast. Today we are focusing on the first two chapters of the book, which outline Lewis's original idea and some of the challenges he discovered when he was working on the subject. Now in the introduction he talks about how he defines what he calls gift love and need love. Those were his original concepts. At first he felt he was going to praise gift love, be somewhat critical of need love. And that leads us to our word of the day. So the word of the day is panegyric. According to Merriam-Webster, panegyric is a formal or elaborate praise. So in the text, he says he was planning on writing panegyrics for gift love. And he said he was intending to be critical uh, somewhat of need love. But as he explored the subject, C.S. Lewis decided that his original ideas were not quite on the mark. This is very interesting to me, considering that this is a man who was very intelligent, I believe a very introspective man, and he had written extensively. You know, we know just from the history of his life that he was around a lot of very intelligent people, but to learn that towards the end of his life, he came to understand that his thoughts about something like love were not fully organized is fascinating. So he begins the first chapter with explaining his original thoughts, then he walks the reader through his logic chains, working towards his conclusion. He defines gift love as self-sacrificing or works done for others. An example he gives is a man who works and saves to benefit family that he'll never meet, that will only come along after he's passed on. The example he gives for need love is expressed as a frightened child running to his mother, to his or her mother when they're scared. So we begin with gift love, which he starts out feeling is superior and need love, which at the very beginning he is not as enthusiastic about. An interesting quote from the text, he points out, All we mean by our love is craving to be loved, we are in a very deplorable state. Though he still believed that, but as he came to explore the subject, he learned it was more complicated than he first believed. He goes on to defend need love, saying we need to be cautious about calling need love mere selfishness. He points out, that people who say they do not need others tend to be cold and egotistic. And he further goes on to say that people who claim they do not need other people are expressing a bad spiritual symptom, just as lack of appetite is a bad medical symptom. From there, 
he goes into what he calls nearness by likeness versus nearness of approach. Now, sometimes what he's getting at here is sometimes when we are moving forward, we're moving towards something, we have a goal. In order to attain our goal, we will seem to be or will be further from what we want. The analogy that he gives in the text is of a person standing on a cliff above their home. He talks about someone who lives in a village and they've gone on a walk. And on their walk, they come up onto a cliff. And that cliff is over their house. So from the from their vantage point on the cliff, they can look down into their village and see their house. And from point A to point B, they're very close to it. But to get there, they have to take a long trip. As they make this journey at several points, they, he says they may be much further from their home than they were when they were on the cliff. But with each step, they're getting closer to being home. So nearness by likeness is that person on the cliff who... They seem like they're close to their residence, even though they can't get to it that way. Nearness by approach is the actual journey of getting to the house, even though at certain points they're going to be much further than they, than they were when they could see it, and it's going to seem like a long trip. But each step gets them closer to where they want to be. He says the distinction between nearness by likeness and nearness of approach is important because without it, we can confuse God is love with love is God, and that seems to be a lot of what this book is about. So he says that every human love at its height has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. Its voice tends to sound as if it were the will of God himself. It tells us not to count the cost. It demands of us a total commitment. It attempts to override all other claims and insinuates that any action which is sincerely done for love's sake is thereby lawful and even meritorious. The second quote from the text is, A faithful and genuinely self-sacrificing passion will speak to us with what seems the voice of God. Merely animal or frivolous lust will not. It will corrupt its addict in a dozen ways, but not in that way. A man may act upon such feelings, but he cannot revere them any more than a man who scratches reveres the itch. So essentially what both these quotes are getting at is when nearness by likeness is confused with nearness by approach, unhealthy patterns can emerge Addiction, bad habits, and poor life choices can all be a result. Bringing that back to the original analogy, he's saying that from the top of that cliff, looking down on your home, you can feel like you're very close to it, but you do not want to confuse that with nearness of approach, with actually getting closer to your home or goals, etc. The next part of the book is one of those passages that can be difficult to understand because he mentions several authors by their last name only. Some of those were authors that were popular during his lifetime, and I would imagine most modern readers would only know about them if they studied poetry or 19th and early 20th century literature. During the period Lewis wrote, popular authors were rejecting and debunking novels and literature of the 19th century. Apparently the subject of romantic love was being knocked off of its pedestal and criticized as being useless sentiment. While he does not exactly defend the tone of the 19th century literature, he points out that many of the loves written about were true loves, but he admonishes that making them idols is as bad as making them demons. So we have 19th century poets and authors praising love and probably putting it in that love is God category. Another way to say this might be being in love with love. And then during his lifetime, we have authors debunking their predecessors and overcorrecting, marginalizing love and stigmatizing a slush and sentimentality a great deal of what their fathers said in praise of love. Something we see in society again and again is the current generation reacting against the previous generation. 
This can take the form of children rebelling against parents, or even young parents rebelling against the way they were raised and taking a much different approach with their own children. Or a generation of college students rebelling against the norms of the previous generation. Social commentators often discuss how the pendulum swings back and forth. Society swings in one direction, and if people rebel against that direction and swing the pendulum the other direction, then the pattern repeats itself. Part of the issue here is a lack of context. When people do not understand what happened as recently as three to four generations ago, much less 2,000 years ago, they are doomed to keep spinning their wheels. Or to stick with the pendulum example, do no more than continue the pattern. This is one of the reasons why studying older texts has immense value in modern life. I feel that this is also one of the areas where many history teachers drop the ball. History should not be about dates and events exclusively, it should be about people. History is not a dry record of dates and treaties. History is an essential record of the human condition, of motivations, desires, mistakes, remarkable events, and moments of stunning greed. Losing sight of that is foolish. When we only look at what we believe to be the experiences of the previous generation, it can feel like society has changed a great deal. But when we look over centuries or even thousands of years, we see that the human condition has not changed. Wrapping up this section of the podcast, there are two quotes that I feel are very relevant. The first is from this book, which I believe is a quote from the Bible in itself, and that is, the highest does not stand without the lowest. The second quote is from another book I am very fond of, The Book of Five Rings by Miyamoto Musashi, where Musashi says that going too far is as bad as not going far enough. Putting these into context, my point is, when we are evaluating any situation, social or business or what have you, we want to be cautious about overcorrecting. It is much easier to make a small correction, evaluate, and correct a little more than to make a huge correction and need to backtrack or overcorrect again. I'm speaking in very general terms, and this is a subject we will visit again in future discussions. So moving on to chapter two, we have likings and loves for the subhuman. Now Lewis opens the chapter making a distinction between like and love. He discusses how people misuse the word love when they really mean like. The first example he gives is from his own youth, from children saying they loved strawberries. He goes on to expound on what it means to like something versus love something. He says that since to like something means to take pleasure from it, we must begin with pleasure. Now he splits pleasure into two categories, pleasures that are preceded by desire and pleasures that require no preparation. An example of pleasures preceded by a desire would be a person who is thirsty taking a drink of water. An example of a pleasure that required no preparation would be a, could be an unexpected pleasant scent. The example he provides in the text is a person on a walk who comes near a bean field in bloom and they enjoy the odor that it gives. So this brings us to what he calls need pleasures, which are preceded by a desire, and appreciative pleasures, which are unexpected pleasures. We may not even know we appreciate them until we experience them. He cautions against assuming a moral or evaluating attitude when comparing need pleasures and appreciative pleasures. Quoting from the text, he says, The human mind is generally far more eager to praise and dispraise than to describe and define. He says the mind wants to make every distinction a distinction of value. He says this can be dangerous because need pleasure is a state in which appreciative pleasures go bad if they become addictions. He goes on to say, that we tend to lose interest in need pleasures the moment they are satisfied. Some examples are a drink of water when thirsty. Generally, no one craves water unless they have a need for it. 
Another example is the odor of frying food before and after breakfast. When we are hungry, the scent of cooking food tends to be very pleasurable. Right after we eat, some people might not react to the scent or even dislike it. And the final example, and the most amusing one in the text, is he gives he talks about the profound relief upon finding a bathroom when we're desperate and in a strange town versus having no need for a bathroom and seeing one. So wrapping up the second chapter, Lewis explains that appreciative pleasures can have a measure of respect for the object. At this point in the text, Lewis adds appreciative love to his list of need love and gift love. Defining those for clarity, we have need love. An example of that would be someone might say they cannot live without he or her or whatever. Gift love is a love that longs to provide for the beloved, does not ask for anything in return. In appreciative love, the last one that he adds in the second chapter, rejoices in the beloved or the object, even if they cannot enjoy them personally. From that point, he goes into a long discussion about nature, and this is one of those passages that can be difficult to understand due to the passage of time and changes in literature. I personally have not read any of the authors he references here, so I am not familiar with their arguments outside of his commentary in the text. He goes at length to say that he does not believe people can find God in nature. He does say that being out in nature gave him context for words like glory and terror, and those helped him to understand God, but he did not believe that nature in itself could lead lead to a healthy spirituality. He says that a true philosophy may sometimes validate an experience of nature. An experience of nature cannot validate a philosophy. From that point, he goes on to discuss patriotism and love of country. And this one gets pretty interesting, but when he starts off, he says that when patriotism is a healthy thing, love of country might prevent rulers from behaving badly. When it's an unhealthy patriotism, it can make it easier for rulers to do wicked things. This section was written in a very different period in history. He lived through a very different period in history, obviously. He, was a, he, he fought in World War I, and he lived through World War II. He lived through a period when patriotism was not just the norm. It was encouraged by institutions and government and celebrities and everything else. It's much different than now. The danger he's discussing is along the lines of a subject loving their country so much, they might easily be manipulated into actions that would go against a more tempered judgment. He finishes with a very interesting passage explaining that when patriotism has been rejected, it creates another issue. When leaders want for one reason or another, to get involved in a foreign war, and the means for the push to get involved in that war cannot be patriotic, it goes like this, and here's a quote from the book. He says, When the case for patriotism has been destroyed, this can only be done by presenting every international conflict in a purely ethical light. If people will spend neither sweat nor blood for their country, they must be made to feel that they are spending them for justice, for civilization, or humanity. He says, this is a step down, not up. I'm not going to elaborate much on that. I think it's a fascinating quote. Um, And I think there may be some current events that this quote could very possibly relate to. The final quote I'm going to give from today's episode that follows that last thing is, he says, nonsense draws evil after it. This concludes this episode of The Literate Caveman, an introduction to The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. Next week, we will break into the next chapter, which deals with the love of affection, called storge, with a hard G in the original Greek. Thank you for listening.